We are continuing in our Holy Spirit series this morning. And this morning what I want to do is I want to start us off with a question. Because the very first thing that we see happening in the Gospel of John, and we're not looking at the Gospel of John, so don't get thrown off by that, but the very first question that Jesus asks one of his, two of his, would-be disciples in the Gospel of John is this question. What do you want? What is it that you want? What is it that you desire? It's a question that I think if we were all facing Jesus and he asked us that question, it's a question that I think would get at the heart of our deepest desires. And it's very difficult to imagine Jesus staring you in the face, asking you that question, and you not being honest with him, correct? What do you want? What do you want? What is it that you want? What do you say? What's your instinctive response? Are you satisfied with your response? Or do you feel a little sheepish about it? What do you want? Well, Jesus, what I really want is an upgrade on my car. What I actually really spend most of my time thinking about is having a bigger house, maybe a bigger yard, maybe redoing our deck. I'd really, really like to renovate my kitchen, new hardwood flooring, because every time people come over, it just feels old and grody. Actually, you know, Jesus, I, what I really want is to feel justified in a decision that I just made, in how I treated someone. Or to have more self-confidence, to feel better about myself. Maybe to have more friends, maybe to have less friends. Maybe to, f- to be right in an argument with my spouse. Or to come out on top in a conversation that I'm having in a conflict that I'm having with a friend of mine. Or, you know, Jesus, what I really want, I want that person who hurt me to come and apologize. That's what I really want. See, when our greatest desire, the thing that we think about the most, what consumes our thinking, is greater than our relationship with Christ, it's very easy for that thing to become the thing that we idolize. Because remember, if we're not worshiping Jesus, we are worshiping something else. It's often something outside of ourselves, or it's actually we worship ourselves. And the things that we are supposed to do on a religious basis become tasks or responsibilities or or obligations that we kind of just fit in whenever we can squeeze it into our schedules. How often do we hear people say these, these words? I should pray more often. I really need to read my Bible more often. I should probably go to church. I I should think about giving to the poor and serving others. Yes, those are all really good things. We should think about that. That's true. But Jesus' question is getting at something much deeper than a what-I-should-do attitude. He's asking us to really examine our desires and discern what is at the heart of our motivations. What do you want most? What drives your heart? What are you seeking after? What, what gets you up in the morning other than coffee? What do you want? Because it's in response to that question, it's the response to that question that we'll actually find out what's at the core 
what our, tr what our affections truly are, what we really want. And if we don't like what we find there, we're going to need some help. Because according to Scripture, our desires can't actually shift from desiring something outside of us to desiring he who lives within us without a working of his Holy Spirit. See, because the Spirit's greatest desire and the Spirit's most important task is to transform us so that what we want the most is Jesus. Not just to be a good person, not just to be someone with good morals, not just to be somebody who serves others and who, who walks humbly and justly and, and mercifully. Those are all good things. But that's just old covenant, which we're going to talk about. That's just old covenant conversation if we're not actually doing those things and living them out out of a love for Jesus. God's greatest beef with the Israelites wasn't just that they weren't following his laws. It was that they weren't following and doing his laws out of a love and adoration for him. It's why scripture praises David for being a man after God's heart. David sought after God's heart. He chased after God's heart. It was God's heart that mattered most to him. As writer and speaker Beth Moore once put it, he who created us also longs for us with a holy affection, and his will is that we would desire him too. His will is that we would desire him too. But I'm here to tell you this morning that we actually can't do this on our own, which is both daunting and also a comfort. We cannot do this on our own, and that's demonstrated in two passages that we're going to read this morning. Uh, we'll start with one, so we'll kind of go through one of the passages, and then in a little bit we'll look at the second. So the first passage we're looking at is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 28. So if you've brought a Bible with you, you can turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. If you want to grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you, if I'm remembering correctly, because I figured it'd be hard to find Ezekiel, it's in the middle of the Old Testament, it's on page 865, okay? The words will also be up on the screen. I'll give you a couple minutes just to find it. Ezekiel chapter 36. And we're going to start at verse 24. Verses 24 through 28. Okay. God says this through the prophet Ezekiel. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so if you, if you keep your Bibles open, um, you'll notice just, just a little earlier in this chapter, God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, and he's bemoaning the reality that Israel, over and over and over again, um, are acting in idolatrous ways and are acting in ways that are counter to God's ways. And so what they've done, and he says this over and over, they've profaned his name among the nations. 
Now, that is kind of a big deal because remember, God's whole mission, his whole kingdom endeavor in Scripture is that the nations would know him, that the nations would proclaim him, that he would be called holy among the nations. But Israel's behavior and the consequences of that behavior meant that now, rather than being a light to the nations and proclaiming God's name among the nations, they've actually profaned it because they've been sent into exile, because of their idolatrous ways. So now, what God's doing is he's promising through Ezekiel, in the midst of all of this idolatry and exile and nonsense, he's promising that he's going to do something totally new, totally new, so that his name can be proclaimed as holy. He's going to work through the people of Israel but he's going to do it in a totally different way. Verse 25, he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. What do you think of when you think of sprinkling clean water? What do you think of? It's okay, you can say things. Baptism, yes! Forgiveness, a cleansing, being washed clean. It's the language of forgiveness. How is he going to do this? Well, we know, of course, because we know where the story goes from here. We know that this cleansing comes through Jesus Christ. But for right now, God's just revealing pieces of his plan. Somehow, his people will be cleansed of all of their wayward desires so that the sin aspect can be dealt with. Okay? The sin aspect can be dealt with by the cleansing of those impurities. They're washed clean. And then he says this, verse 26 to 27, I'm going to give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'm going to remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. Say what? How crazy! This is language we hear all the time, right? But think about what that would sound like to an ancient Israelite. Think of how crazy that would be. What do you mean you're just going to like take out my heart and put a different one in? How is that even possible? Remember, God had formally written his law on tablets of stone, right? Moses went up the mountain, Mount Sinai, in Exodus, and he came down with stone tablets that God had written on. That was what gods did. That's what kings did. That's what leaders did. They wrote their law or their instructions or their covenant stipulations down on paper or on stone. But that's the thing. That method, that normal means of doing things, didn't work. And not because the law was faulty, but because the people were. Their hearts were just too hard too stubborn, too inclined towards rebellion. They didn't seek after God with all their hearts and souls and mind and strength. So they, they couldn't be moved or bothered to follow in his ways. So God says that he's going to do a full heart transplant on them. He really is. See, because the heart in, ancient, in an ancient way of thinking, wasn't just, you know, this cute little symbol that we, you know, take pictures with or that we throw in a text message. Neither did it refer to a particular part of your body. The heart was actually the seat of someone's whole personality. 
When they referred to the heart, they referred to the whole being, the will, the emotions, the affections, everything. Which means then that if the heart of a person is hardened or misguided, that means that everything that flows out of that person, their motivations, their inclinations, their will, their spirit, is going to be just as misguided. What flows out of them matches the state of their heart. What needs to happen then is for God's spirit to make a movement towards them, to act upon them, and to transform their hearts so that they can then receive him and be empowered to live according to his ways out of a newfound love for him. Right? The mo- that's the only way that the, motiv- the, the motivations and the affections can change, is if God's Spirit actually makes a movement on us. Why? Because it's the Spirit who transforms. So we're going to look now at the second passage this morning. We're going to put this passage, hold on to these things, okay, don't forget, hold on. Now we're going to look at the second passage in 2 Corinthians. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, it comes after 1 Corinthians, just in case that wasn't obvious. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's also going to be on the screen, but it is nice to have the words consistently in front of you. Sorry, I don't know what page number that is, but hear most of the... Okay, okay, all right. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, says Paul, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. And this is the key verse. You show, he's talking to the Corinthians here, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Okay, so in Paul's day, just to give a little bit of context, how you would demonstrate your authority to people who didn't know you is you would have somebody send ahead of you a recommendation letter. It's a letter that would attest to your qualifications and your credentials as a leader or a ministry leader or a speaker or a teacher. Sort of like today when people ask you to write a reference letter for them. It functioned very similarly. Uh, it, It was the... The way that somebody's character or professionalism or credentials or qualifications could be made known before that person came to visit. But for Paul, now, how the Spirit was moving and transforming the hearts of the Corinthian believers was evidence enough of his qualifications for ministry in this church. Because they, these believers, he says, they were a living letter of recommendation. That's how much the Spirit had moved among them and transformed them. What mattered wasn't some list of qualifications for Paul, but rather the testimony of changed hearts. As scholar F.F. Bruce put it, the change which the gospel had effected in their hearts 
was manifested in their lives. Again, the heart change had happened, and that showed in their motivations and their inclinations outward. The change which the gospel had affected in their hearts was manifested in their lives so as to be known and read by all. See, this is exactly this. What's happening, not, not Bruce, the other guy, the Corinthians. What's happening in the Corinthian church right now is exactly what God was talking about through the prophet Ezekiel. What's happening in Corinth, despite all their messiness and all their failures and all the times that Paul had to yell at them for being silly, despite all of that, they are now fulfilling these words in Ezekiel. This, what's happening here in Corinth, is the fulfillment of those prophetic words. Paul alludes to it directly when he says to the Corinthians in verse 3, you show, you're demonstrating that you are a letter from Christ. The result of our ministry, i.e. the result of hearing the good news, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. See, Christ communicates to us now, not on stone tablets, but on, the, on human hearts with his Holy Spirit. And he wants that to now be the way that people come to know him. That's how he wants to be known. Not by a written code, but by the transformation of human hearts. Look at another prophetic word in Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant God says I will make with my people. Again, it's covenant language. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Covenant language again. I will be their God, they will be my people. That was the same way that that passage in Ezekiel finished. This is how the new covenant people of God are going to be defined and identified. Not by a written code, again, which was the Pharisees' problem. If you remember some of Jesus' interactions with Pharisees all throughout the Gospels, over and over and over, their obsession with the written code, no, not by that anymore, but by actual heart transformation. And the church in Corinth is an example of this. They are the walking, talking means by which God's name is being proclaimed to their neighbors. Not because they're simply following a bunch of rules and being good moral people. No, it's actual heart transformation. If anybody could have bragged about following rules, it would have been Paul, right? But for him, because God had initiated a new covenant with, through Jesus, seeing the transformation in the hearts and the characters and motivations of the Corinthian believers was proof enough that the Spirit was working among them and that the new covenant was alive and at work. That was proof to him that God's new covenant had started because the Spirit was doing things among them and within them. That is all that mattered to Paul. All that mattered was that the message of Jesus was now imprinted on the hearts of those believers by the Spirit, which then inspired within them a love and a motivation to follow him out of love for him. Not because they felt that they should, should do it, not because they felt like they had to do it, but because they wanted to. They actually wanted to. Is this making sense? Being 
a good moral person does not put me in good standing with God. Only Jesus can do that. Because it's his cleansing of me and my reception of his Holy Spirit, him advocating for me, that can do that. That has to happen first. The element of my sin, just as the way that God talked with Israel, the element of sin had to be dealt with. And because of Jesus, because he's done this, this cleansing, as was promised in Ezekiel, I can now have his Holy Spirit within me actually transforming me so that I follow Jesus, not out of sheer obligation or often idolatrous obedience, you know, a sort of obedience that really cares about other things, but I'm walking this way anyway. No, but out of a love for him. Because I love him. A love that is greater than my own selfish wants or desires. A love that wants to seek after him and actually see others come to know him. The great philosopher Plato, the great Greek philosopher Plato, I'm sure you've heard the name, once said that a good teacher doesn't write down his message in ink that will fade away. A good teacher, rather, finds a disciple and sows the seed of his message in a heart that will understand. Now, ironically, Plato's only known for good writings. Jesus who didn't write anything down himself, is known for transforming hearts. Why? Because it's his spirit who transforms us. What does all of this mean? Well, what it means, folks, is that whether we like it or not, every single one of us is a human advertisement for Jesus. As it was for the Israelites, we also have the opportunity to either profane or proclaim his name among the nations by how we actually love him. But the difference for us now is that we have his Holy Spirit. We have been given his Holy Spirit. When Jesus spoke of a new covenant, that there was going to be a new covenant when he spoke of that to his disciples, he was referring to the promises in Scripture, the promise, that promise in Ezekiel, where God would be their God and they would be his people because of his spirit within them. The spirit was God's way of recreating and reshaping human hearts, of, of reversing the fall, because the reality is at the core of each one of us, on our own, we are idolaters. Under the weight of sin, our, our desires and our inclinations are always to worship something else or ourselves. Think of what we see early on in the book of Exodus with the character of Pharaoh, that battle between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and, and Pharaoh, the you know, quote-unquote God of Egypt, right? Pharaoh's heart, in part by his own doing and in part spurred on by the presence of another God greater than him, his heart was hardened over and over and over, hardened, stone cold, because it was overcome by self-idolatry. For Israel too, the Israelites came to resist God's authority because they were overrun by their own self-idolatry, by wanting to do their own thing and, and find their own way to holiness and worship other gods that seemed to be better off for them. At the end of the day, it wasn't about the God they were worshiping, it was about what they could get from the God. 
That's self-idolatry. It looks like it's outward idolatry, but that's actually self-idolatry. When what we want is from, from a being or a God is just catering to our own needs. What they needed was God's Spirit to soften their hearts so that they wouldn't seek their own individualistic ways, cater to their own needs and desires, and live however was most comfortable and convenient. I mean, you hear these words and it's like, oh, we're, we're really not that different. We need it. We need the Spirit just as much as they did. And in Jesus, the cleansing to initiate the new covenant has happened. God has wiped the slate clean. He's, he's driven a Zamboni over all of your icy, idolatrous ways. It's clean. You have that fresh slate. We don't need to wear the baggage anymore of our guilt and be inclined towards inclinations like anger and resentment and bitterness. No, because now in the Spirit, this is what it looks like to have our hearts softened and transformed. Liz just talked about it with the kids. It looks like this, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, note this, against such things, there is no law. What does that mean? What does that mean? Why against these things is there no law? Because these things point to the lawgiver. These things are evidence of the Spirit himself working within the human heart, proof of God's covenant law that's being written on us. But if an apple tree isn't producing apples, what good is it? If we as the church, and you know, by the church, I mean you and I, us, not the building, you and I, as the church, if we're not demonstrating these characteristics and this kind of fruit, well then, like Israel, we're probably not being very receptive to the Holy Spirit and receptive to him transforming our desires. And we're just going to fall into the same trap that they did, you know, doing outward actions without actually being inwardly changed. Which is why Paul then says in verses 24 and 25, just after this verse, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit now, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is what we have to do to have that divine heart transplant surgery. We crucify on the cross with Christ our own passions and desires. We die to ourselves because we know that those desires, if they're not touched by the Holy Spirit, are wayward and selfish. And we open ourselves up to his spirit then moving and directing us. Because frankly, guys, any of us could be like Pharaoh. Any of us could be like Israel. But by the spirit, we can be like Jesus. So we die to ourselves. And we live instead by his spirit because it's only by the spirit, again, that we can be transformed. Brother Lawrence, uh, uh, a monk out of the 17th century in France wrote a number of letters that spoke to his own spiritual practices and disciplines. 
And in one of them, he said that whenever he had failed, anytime that he had failed in a duty or an obligation or just done something in general wrong, he would simply confess his fault to God and say this, Lord, I shall never do otherwise if you leave me to myself. Lord, I will never do otherwise if you leave me to myself. It is you who must hinder my falling and mend what is amiss. And he said that that prayer enough was, was peace enough to let him just leave the fault beside, behind and move on. Just saying that prayer. Lord, and I just, I just love it. Lord, I'm an absolute basket case on my own. I am a lost cause. I'm just going to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again unless you do something about it. And that's not meant to be like a lazy prayer. <laughs> but it's, it's submitting ourselves to the work of the transforming spirit. I'm just going to keep failing unless you actually do the work and transform me. Unless you do, as Paul says later on in 2 Corinthians, and you transform me into your image by your spirit with ever-increasing glory. Folks, there's, there's just no getting around it. We need his Holy Spirit. We need it. The good news just isn't the good news without him. When Jesus spoke to his disciples about the bread being his body and the blood being the new covenant, that implied, you know, based on those prophetic words that we saw in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that a cleansing was about to happen. As soon as he mentions new covenant, that implies, based on those words that we looked at, that a cleansing was about to happen. A great act of forgiveness that was going to shake up the whole world was about to happen, which would completely restart and reframe God's covenant relationship with his people. A people who would now be defined and identified by his spirit dwelling within. That was what would identify them as his people. By the transformation that would occur in their own hearts so that they could go and proclaim his name among the nations. Is that what we want most? Is that what is at the core of our desires? Remember the first question that Jesus asks of, of a disciple in the Gospel of John is, what do you want? Interestingly enough, the last question that he asks a disciple in the Gospel of John is this. Do you love me? Is it I who you love most? Let's pray. Living God, we, we want to humble ourselves before you this morning, Lord, and pray as Brother Lawrence prayed, Lord, that you would transform our hearts that you would move mightily within us, Lord, that our 
devotion to you would not be defined simply by outward movements, but by a complete transformation of our hearts. Lord, we know that it is only by your Spirit that this can happen. And so we pray for more of your Spirit. We pray that you would move and transform us, individually and communally. Lord, so that we may be identified as your people and proclaim your name to our neighbors, to our country, to the world. In the powerful name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.